Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Welcome to Palace Confidential. Yes, it's your weekly hit of all things royal. And we might still be locked down in our own personal palaces, although I would swap mine for a haircut any moment now. We will still be bringing you all the latest news and views from the palace. Now, joining me on the show this week is royal biographer Hugo Vickers, the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, and Saturday diary editor, Richard Eden. Here's what's coming up. There's a row over a royal birth certificate. And guess what? The Sussexes are cross and they're pulling zero punches. And from spats to expats, it seems Meghan and Archie probably won't be visiting the UK this year at all. Plus, this weekend marks 69 years since the Queen came to the throne. We hear why it's an important day in more ways than one. But first, well, during this lockdown, I think most of us have watched every television show and every film that has ever been made ever. But there is one film that the Queen really doesn't want you to see. And this week, it disappeared mysteriously from the internet. It's called The Royal Family, and it stars Her Majesty. Here's Editor-at-Large Richard Kay to tell us all about it. The film, simply called Royal Family, came out in 1969. And it was nothing short of an absolute sensation when it came out. Something like 31 million people in Britain watched it. They were absolutely gripped by it because it showed us an intimate portrait of the royal family. Prince Philip in particular was the driving force behind this. He had been in this long-running debate with the then Labour government that the royals were underfunded. He complained on American television. It caused a big storm at the time. And um, and this was kind of his way of, of getting revenge. Well, if they're not going to show that, if they're not going to accept that we're value for money, we're damn it, we're going to show the public that we are. But what it's chiefly remembered for, I think, are, are the intimate family snapshots sitting around the, the dining room table, gossiping, Christmas tree decorating, uh, a young uh, Edward and Andrew having a snowball fight. I mean, the, 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 the public just loved it and um, they wanted more. And I remember a lot of commentators arguing at the time, well, we've seen them, we've seen them eating, eating their meals. We now want to look in their kitchen cupboards. You know, so there was an argument that it had somehow opened, opened the bottle and it was going to be very hard to, to stuff the genie back into it again. Certainly a lot of advisors around the royal family have always grumbled that, the, that it was, this was a self-inflicted wound. That had they not made that movie Royal Family in 1969, uh, then things could have turned out differently. I think, frankly, that's slightly naive, um, but it is an argument. I would say the Queen comes across as incredibly um, dynamic and lively person. I mean, she's she was a young woman on top of her game in 1969, and she had she was very fast with with her views and her opinions and very decisive. I think the the resistance, and particularly from the Queen, was about having. The, those family moments um, on screen. And that's why she, um, when she agreed to the proposal, she made it absolutely clear that if she didn't like it, then the, th- the film would never be broadcast. And, and so they had to go through that entire year, the, the movie makers, knowing that there was a possibility that at the end, 
the Queen could say, sorry, no. There were criticisms of it, but nonetheless, it was repeated a week later on ITV. It was shown then again about three years later in 1972, I think on the occasion of the Queen's 20th anniversary of her accession to the throne. And then suddenly, no more. It disappeared. It was under lock and key, cast into some palace cellar. Quite why that happened, nobody's entirely sure, um, but there's been a veil drawn over it as though it's not fit for public consumption. Um, and allowing and doing it, you know, once again in this 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 month, taking it, getting it taken down um, because of copyright issues or whatever else the excuse they've used will only generate much more interest. And it'll only be a matter of time before another bootleg copy is put up anyway. Coming to you first, Rebecca, the, the Queen actually approved this documentary in 1969. Why the U-turn now? Well, the U-turn actually happened pretty much as it, the film came out. And I think she just felt that it shed a little bit too much light on the inner workings of the royal family. I mean, Princess Anne was pretty open about how annoyed she was about it. I think she called it a rotten idea and said that she felt it was an invitation to more intrusion into their privacy. Um, so I think that's really why they felt that it was, in hindsight, a bad idea. I, I disagree, but it was a, a very strong feeling from them on that. And Hugo, you were um, quite a young pup when this first came out. Do you remember the occasion where teenagers flocking to the cinema to see this fly on the wall documentary with the Royals? Uh, well, it wasn't in the cinema. It was shown on television and everybody watched it. I, I mean, it, it, it uh, came out just before the investiture of Prince Charles and the, the viewer figures actually compared pretty well to the people watching the moon landings. I mean, it was extremely popular at the time. Um, now the reason that the film was made was to introduce Prince Charles into the world because the, uh, there'd be a very sensible decision that Prince Charles and Princess Anne should be kept out of the media during their education. And there was, funnily enough, at that time, a feeling that there might be something kind of wrong with them. And they needed to be shown uh, to be nice, bright and attractive people with bright and attractive parents. And actually, the film achieved that extremely well. It was immensely popular. It was shown right across America. It was shown in 125 countries. And, and nowadays, there's a myth that it was all a disaster. But actually, I don't think it was at all. And as you know, in the, the other day, it slipped out onto YouTube. So now it, the genie is out of the bottle. And I think they should actually release a proper version of it and show it because it would give a much better impression of the royal family back in 1968-69 than, for example, what the perverted picture we get in The Crown, for example. That is an interesting contrast. Now, Richard, surely the palace understand that by making this something they've banned, it's turned it into quite exciting contraband, don't you think? And people will be more anxious to seek it out. Yeah, I mean, doesn't this seem like a sort of scandal from a different era? I mean, it seems like terrible PR to get it withdrawn once it's already out there. But I think it's all to do with copyright and with agreements that were made, you know, many years ago. Um, the palace wanted it withdrawn and the BBC had agreed to that. So it's very embarrassing for the BBC that someone, and we still don't know who, had put, put it onto YouTube. So overall, it's a sort of embarrassing scandal, if you want to call it that. And, you know, I totally agree with Hugo that it'd be much more sensible to bring it out, particularly as we've seen Netflix, The Crown, sort of do their own version of it. I'll tell you the reason why it was so-called banned. It was quite simply that they um, 
didn't want it to be overexposed. They didn't want clips to appear in other things. They didn't want it to be used for advertising purposes. And so it was decided it shouldn't be shown for a long time. And then it somehow got stuck. And so uh, the sort of ban, so-called ban, has lasted all these years. And um, I suppose also it's been superseded by other documentaries. You know, the fact is that people say, oh, it was a disaster to make it. But other documentaries like Edward Mertzoff's, uh, 90, Edward Mertzoff's 1992 documentary were made. So they can't have thought it was such a bad idea. I guess they maybe thought in some ways that it was rather dated. Mm. What about now, Rebecca? Do you think the Queen has regrets about ever making this documentary or do you think she even thinks about it at all anymore? Well, she clearly regrets it, but I, I absolutely agree with Hugo. I'm not really, I don't really understand why. I think it's um, a brilliant piece of television. Um, I mean, people talk a lot about how they love the scenes of the royal family going out boating and doing barbecues at Balmoral. My favourite bit is actually where the, you see the Queen... Um, planning her wardrobe for the coming weeks and months with her dresses um, and it's just it's brilliantly dated in the 60s but she's kind of casually handing, handling this priceless Tamua ruby necklace and saying you know have I ever worn this you know and one really should have you know a special dress made for it I mean it's really brilliantly intimate scenes that shed a really fascinating light on the documentary and is on, on their lives sorry and, and as Hugo says um, you really see the workings and how much how much effort and how much planning and how much preparation goes into royal engagements and royal tours is actually a very positive depiction of the monarchy, I would say. The Queen comes out of it as such a wonderfully executive person. I mean, not only just dis 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 discussing what jewels she's going to wear and dresses, but, you know, th thoughtfully suggesting, you know, that President Nixon's coming to lunch, but they'll just have a small lunch because he's got a busy day, the layout of the kitchens at Windsor Castle, every single thing that is put to put to her she's like the managing director of a company and she has an answer for it she comes out of it extraordinarily well have you seen it Richard so I've actually only seen some of the clips that have been shown um, down the years and then I've seen the Netflix dramatization of it just yeah. as I was about to watch it last week it was swiped from YouTube so yeah I'm desperate to see it now so come on Buckingham Palace let, let's have a U-turn please. Well it's looking set to be a week of mixed feelings for our monarch as this weekend marks Ascension Day that is of course the bittersweet anniversary of the death of her father which also marked her ascending the throne. Rebecca, I'm coming to you now. This would normally be the weekend where she finishes her winter break at Sandringham, but things will be different this year, won't they? Yeah, so Accession Day, which is obviously the day the Queen sadly lost her beloved father, King George VI, um, and she normally marks it quietly at Sandringham. And obviously because of lockdown, she'll be at Windsor this year with um, the Duke of Edinburgh, but clearly it will be nonetheless poignant to her. I mean, that's really why she's never massively in favour of celebrating her own longevity on the throne because of course to achieve that someone very close to her died so it, it's, it's a very poignant day for her and what do you think we can expect from her over the next few weeks i've spoken to buckingham palace for you this week just to kind of get the get the latest on this and obviously they point out um, not unreasonably, that although we haven't seen the Queen, she's obviously been working very hard behind the scenes. She has those red boxes of official papers she has to deal with every day. But yes, they are very busy 
planning her diary. Um, a lot of it, they say to me, is very COVID dependent. So, for example, before Christmas, they'd managed to get audiences running again, which is when foreign ambassadors come to hand in their credentials officially to the Queen. And they were picking them up by carriage and taking them to Buckingham Palace and then having a live video link to the Queen at Windsor, which was fantastic. Now, because the government only wants essential journeys, they can't do that anymore. So I think it's fair to say we'll be seeing a lot more video calls for the next few weeks. Now, extraordinarily, we are coming up, we're only a year away from the Platinum Jubilee. Can you believe this? This is like, you know, there's something that no other monarch has achieved. So presumably discussions are starting in the palace walls about that. Absolutely. In fact, they've had a really senior official dedicated solely to planning this Jubilee since last spring. And that's in terms of um, organising documentaries, memorabilia, dealing with the DCMS about what the public commemorations or celebrations will be. It's going to be a really big event and very, very exciting. I know they've got a lot of plans up their sleeve. Do you think we'll get a coin? We will definitely get a coin. <laughs> Coins, stamps, uh, tea towels, you name it. I, you oh, know. good, 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 yeah. good. It'll all be there. Speaking of celebrations, now we mentioned here on Palace before that it's looking very likely that Prince Harry will be returning to Britain in the summer for the Trooping McCullough. But it's also looking increasingly unlikely that he will be joined by Meghan and Archie on that transatlantic trip. Richard, what, what do you make of this? I presume you're not massively surprised about Meghan not coming? No, um, although it would have been a wonderful opportunity, I think. You know, the chance to come back for a series of important royal events and particularly the unveiling of the statue of Princess Diana. It would be a great pity if Meghan and Archie are not with Harry. Um, you know, we will see what the situation is in terms of international travel and the um, COVID situation. But, you know, if they can come, you, you would have expected them to come. Yeah, Hugo, is it me or are we all starting to get the feeling that Meghan's really putting effort now into never coming back to the UK? Well, I rather get that impression because I think that she's managed to, in a very, very short time, turn herself from somebody who is immensely popular. I mean, remember all those crowds that came out for the wedding into somebody who is really pretty unpopular. And I mean, Prince Harry looks to me incredibly unhappy and he's sitting there right in Los Angeles spouting all this stuff that comes, you know, I, I, I love to call it Californian rubbish, to be quite honest. <laughs> Um, and the podcast and things like that. And I think it's absolutely, it's terribly, terribly sad. And I, I personally think that the sooner he comes back, the better, because he looks miserable, but I can't really see her coming back. But of course, there's a huge issue because they have a child, a child. And um, I, don't think, I don't think it's going to end well somehow. It's funny that you bring up um, baby Archie, Rebecca, because there's another Megan story that's cropped up this week surrounding the controversy, it turns out, over Archie's birth certificate. What, what can you tell us? Yeah, this has dominated my week quite a lot. Um, <laughs> there was there was a story in the Sun on Sunday newspaper, an intriguing story, but not a massive one, um, that uh, three weeks after Archie's birth certificate was registered, it was changed. And that change was to take off Meghan's Christian names, uh, Rachel Meghan, and replace it solely with her title, which is Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex. Now, 
interesting probably to geeks like me I'm not sure how interesting it is to other people but where it really got ratcheted up was that Harry and Meghan were furious uh, about this piece and particularly the rather spurious suggestions in it that maybe they did it because they didn't want to be like the Cambridges and they issued a really stinging statement uh, accusing the paper of trying to whip up a storm of controversy when there was none but in that there was a pretty pithy rebuke it seemed to be, to Buckingham Palace, saying that they'd only done this because they were dictated to by the palace. And uh, trust me, Buckingham Palace do not want to get into a public row with this couple anymore. They really don't. But I think there were, the feeling was they had to really very gently put the record straight as they saw it, that actually they didn't dictate it to, to them at all and that it was a decision by the Sussex's office um, because apparently they wanted the birth certificate to be in line with other documents like um, the Duchess's um, passport. Um, Harry and Meghan didn't take this line down. They brief, Their representatives have seemed to have briefed papers like the New York Post. No, this is what happened. And, and something that should have been a quite innocuous story, although an interesting mm. one, has really got blown up out of all proportions. Well, let's be clear what's happening here is it all stems from the foolishness of... Duke and Duchess of Sussex, that in a fit of pique, they announced they wouldn't have any dealings whatsoever with Britain's popular press. So what this means is a, a newspaper like The Sun has a story or a tip, and normally you'd speak to um, the couple's representatives and they'd be able to explain the context, and then you might decide to publish the article or not, and it would include their comment. But instead, what happens is they can get no guidance or comment, so they run the article, and then you get a you know statement the following day, furious from Harry and Meghan, or often threatening legal action or something. And what it does is give the story a whole new lease of life, and it drags out a very minor story here into a whole sort of weeks of controversy. It, it just illustrates the craziness of their approach, I think. I would have said it was most unusual, yes, but I think, I think um, as Rebecca says, it's a kind of like a trivial issue which has been blown up out of all proportion. And once again, I'm sorry, but it seems to me that it's, it's, uh, it's the, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan, at the other end, who's, who's sort of attacking everyone, seems to think of the palace as some sort of politburo that she can have a go at whenever anything else like this happens. And it's not going to make relations any easier at all. Um, I mean, it's, just, it's, so, it's so boring. I mean, who cares? <laughs> on the birth certificate you know I mean it was bad enough to be quite honest I mean that if you really want to know that's when I began to get very suspicious about what was going on which was a whole business about the birth of poor Archie you know because she's she's the first mother I mean I'm not a gynecologist but or an obstetrician but she went into she went into labor after giving birth to the child apparently according to the announcements that were made at the time we were not allowed to know where she was where the baby was being born we weren't allowed to know who the godparents was were and I mean it's just stupid I mean that really antagonized a lot of people. Uh, Hugo I think Meghan's grandmother by marriage the Queen has a a matter of never complain, never explain. Would you think that that's a, a wise course for Meghan and Harry? <laughs> a bit late, no. I mean, there's <laughs> always a new day. <laughs> of, course, of course, it would be a good thing to do. But I mean, they are, 
I think they're in a very difficult situation because they they need to keep promoting themselves and um, and and you know they they have all these supposedly fantastic deals. I'm not sure that they will get the money that they expect from these companies. Very often, these companies hire people and get a lot of publicity, and then a few months down the line, they fire them and get even more publicity. Um, but you know, if you're thinking about what you're trying to do with Harry, when he was a member of the royal family on the balcony in a fantastic uniform, or going down the mall in a carriage, the tube in the colour, something like that, there he is. That's that. That I can see you can market, but look at him now. He's a guy in an open shirt, or he's a, a chap uh, c- coming off an aeroplane with a backpack and a you know a, you know a, a woolly beard and a woolly hat. Quite frankly, a try marketing that is not going to work. It's not going to get any better, I don't think. Yes, and speaking about Harry and his uniforms, Rebecca, what is this about Harry's military titles? What news can you tell us? Yes, that was the one little issue well not so little issue after the Sandringham summit it was yet to be resolved obviously the couple were told they had to give up most of their royal links and patronages but Harry is obviously very someone who's with you know 10 year service under his belt and two tours of Afghanistan he set up the Invictus Games he he's very passionate about his work he does with the military and basically the Queen agreed to let him keep um, his three honorary military titles in abeyance until the 12 months probationary period was up. Now, uh, the Daily Telegraph was briefed by friends of Harry this week, claiming that he was determined to fight, that's their words, um, to keep these patronages. Now, I, I've spoken to Buckingham Palace, who are kind of not overly commenting on the record, but the definite guidance is that they don't feel their position has changed and that, you know, there really does need to be a clean break and Harry will have to relinquish those titles as well. So it does seem like there could be another spat on the horizon. And again, I think that's something, you know, the monarchy and also Harry and Meghan don't need. I've heard from friends of Prince Harry that he feels very strongly about this and that he plans to use the example of the Queen's cousin, Prince Michael of Kent, who was allowed to keep some of his military ties, even though he doesn't have any official working role in the royal family. And Harry thinks that there's, why should there be one rule for the Queen's cousin and another for him? He, he thinks it's grossly unfair. I think Prince Michael is a very different example because he is still supporting the Queen. Okay, he's and he is actually a member of the royal family and he's still appearing and doing duties and things like that. The, the real example, of course, you might have chosen was the, the Duke of Windsor, who certainly had to give up all his military titles and he, he had no... Um, no connection with him. He'd been colonel in chief of all, virtually all the regiments, all the guards' regiments. He'd been a colonel, etc., etc. And so that all that all finished. But you know, I can't see what use Prince Harry would be to say the Royal Marines if he's out in Los Angeles. I mean, if you want your Captain General, you want him to be doing things, and he frankly is not here. So he is attached, but he is also detached. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Palace Confidential, but we will be back next week to fill you in on all the latest news and gossip. And I'm hoping to have enough to do some braids. See you next time here on Palace Confidential at Mail Plus. Bye-bye.